Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we choose a natural histories topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. So, Steve, this feels like a little bit of deja vu. Yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> so, uh, do you want to give them the background on this episode? Yeah, so about a month ago, Bill and I headed out to Griffin Hill Farm Brewery uh, to do a little bit of an interview and, uh, and talk about the periodical cicadas. Right. But... Something happened and the file's all corrupted now, right. so we can't include the interview. And we recorded the episode thinking we would have an interview, and now we just got to redo the whole thing because, folks, there's no interviews. <laughs> so we are going to be focusing on the periodical cicadas for today's episode. And we'll be referring to the interview we did with Fran Lawler, uh, who was... Uh, kind enough to, to spend an hour with us and share her experiences with cicadas at their property. Um, but unfortunately, we won't be able to share the audio. Yeah, yeah. But we really want to thank her, and, and we're sorry that the, the audio didn't work out. Yeah. But back to the cicadas. Yes. Just to explain what these guys are, they're the cicadas that emerge every 13 or 17 years for the three Fs. Right. That'd be feeding, flying... And mating. <laughs> I, so I, I poached that joke from Steve Mould, a science educator, but it was too good not to steal. So give him some credit where credit's due. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the details of the periodical cicadas, though, I do have a little bit of a story to share. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we mentioned before that uh, I teach a, a, a class at UB. So each week I try to share with my students some natural phenomena to get out and see. I try to encourage them to get outside. And a few years ago, I was looking for something near the end of the semester, you know, May or something like that. And I came across a video with David Attenborough about the periodical cicadas. Now, I had heard about these things on and off over the years, but uh, had never really looked into it. And it blew me away. The life cycle of these things, the numbers that they emerge in, and I, I kind of felt a little ashamed that I had never experienced it personally. So yeah, yeah. I show the video to my students, but then I never followed up on it. Um, I was feeling even worse because now I knew about it, but I had always assumed that they emerged in late May, early June, which which is true mm -hmm. in some areas, but. Uh, we were able to actually catch the tail end of this year's emergence, 2018, mm -hmm. in early July. Yeah. So, you know, late May, early June is, is always a tough time for teachers, so it was always tough to get out to, to go see these guys. They're only in very localized areas, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was my introduction to these critters, and we should give a, a shout-out to your friend. Oh, Lana. Lana, because yeah. she is the one who lives near Syracuse, New York, and put us in touch with Fran in Griffin Hill Brewery and gave us the chance to go and see some of these cicadas in action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But let's talk about cicadas in general. Sure, yeah. Uh, not just periodical cicadas, because they are part of a larger group of cicadas. And these guys are in what order? Hemiptera, the true bugs. And who does that include? Uh, so you'll get your leaf hoppers, your tree hoppers, you'll get... Aphids. Aphids, uh, kissing bugs, yeah. uh, wheel bugs, yeah. So there's about 3,000 species in that group, and what 
groups these guys together is they share a common arrangement of sucking mouth parts. Yep. Yep. So most of these guys feed on sap. Mm-hmm. There are some that do feed on other insects. There are some that are, are parasitic. But for the most part, these are not insects that we have to worry about stinging us or biting us. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, Except for the kissing bug I mentioned. Right. Those guys can get you. So cicadas are a little on the large side for insects. So they are startling for some people. But they're not uh, a critter you need to worry about hurting you. Uh-huh. <laughs> but let's talk about... <laughs> they will They will tumble into you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about what they look like. Mm-hmm. So you know Star Wars. I know you're a Star Wars fan. Sure. So I'm do you re- really looking forward to where this is going to go. <laughs> do you remember in the initial Star Wars, the character Hammerhead? Uh, do, part of the Rebellion, maybe? Or no, not? I think he was no? a bounty hunter, actually. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I remember I had the Hammerhead figurine when I was little. <laughs> he, they have a, a head like a Hammerhead shark, very wide-set eyes. And that makes, when I think of a cicada, the first thing you notice is they have very large wide-set eyes on either side of the head. Yeah. And then their thorax is relatively short but very fat, and then their abdomen is fat, but it quickly tapers to a rounded point. Mm-hmm. And then they have long wings in relation to their body. Say so you, you don't always see the abdomen, especially if they're perched on something. Because right. like most hemiptera, their forewings are larger than their hind wings, and those forewings really extend pretty far past the end of the body. Right. So yeah. that's one of their, their most noticeable uh, features. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the mic is picking it up right now, but we are hearing some cicadas in the trees overhead. Mm-hmm. And we should mention, which we haven't done, where are we today? <laughs> oh, well, I know we're close to your house. <laughs> so we are at West Falls Town Park. This is a, a small town park that we've recorded at before. There's a nice shale bottom creek here. There's a nice, uh, there are some small patches of old growth trees here. And we're here today simply because it was close to my house. We're, we're not going to find periodical cicadas, but I figured we would be able to pick up some sounds of the annual cicadas. Mm-hmm. And if the bike didn't pick it up, In post-production, we're going to put in the sound of an annual cicada right here. And I think most people would agree that that is the sound of summertime, right? Yeah, 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 I think so. So there's even one species that's commonly referred to as the dog day cicadas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because often as you get well into the summer, into July and August, uh, they will start making that call. The dog days of summer. That's exactly. So let's talk about annual cicadas and then we can move on to periodical cicadas sure so all of these guys they do have an exceptionally loud song and it's produced not by stridulation is stridulation like what crickets do like the rubbing of stuff exactly yeah so the producing sound by rubbing body parts together that is not what the cicadas do Uh, they have a structure called a a timbal it's it's somewhat drum-like and it's part of their exoskeleton And it's made up of complex membranes, these thin portions, uh, thickened ribs. And when they contract, these membranes buckle inward, and that produces a click. And then when the muscles relax, the timbals return to their position, original position, producing another click. But they do this incredibly fast, so it sounds more like a buzzing. So it's it's a bunch of tiny little, do you know if you open like a glass of tea and then recap that metal cap and you can push that little... 
yeah. thing down on top, like click, 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 click. Like the top of your Snapple bottle. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's how you know it hasn't been opened before, because if you can't do that, it's never been opened. That's yet, right. So. Someone might have spit in it. Yeah. <laughs> so by rapidly vibrating these membranes, the cicadas can combine the clicks into continuous notes, and they can modulate that song by positioning their abdomen toward or away from whatever uh, they're perched on. Mm-hmm. And each species does have a distinctive mating song. Yeah, and I think most of the time you have researchers going by call because sometimes they're going to be really hard to get in your hand. Exactly. Yeah. They'd be hard to get your hands on. Yeah. So only males produce the cicada's sound. Both sexes do have other structures. They're called tympana that they use to detect sounds. And you can think of these as the equivalent of ears. Oh, okay. So did you know that in cicadas, when males are calling, they disable their tympana? Oh, no. So it's almost so like... So they don't uh, deafen themselves? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so they don't hurt themselves. Yeah. And this is necessary because some cicadas produce sounds up to 120 decibels. This could be the loudest of all insect-produced sounds. And I looked up online uh, a comparison chart of, okay, what are the things make sounds that loud? Right. I was about to say 120 decibels means nothing. Right. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. That's why I'm yeah. going to give some context. <laughs> so the sound of a chainsaw within a yard is a similar sound. Whoa, and that's loud. Right, you exactly. You earmuffs for the most part, yeah. So if you did let a cicada land on you, a male cicada, and produce its sound right outside your ear, that could potentially, if you allowed it to do that for a while, cause permanent hearing damage. Man. So don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Now that we know what they look like, at least generally speaking, the sounds they make, what do they feed on? Well, they're hemipterans, right. so they have that sucking mouth part, and they uh, feed on uh, phloem and xylem sap. Yeah, so feeding mostly on sap, right? Yeah. yeah. And in the particular case of the periodical cicadas that we'll be talking about later in this episode, uh, they would be feeding on root sap, the sap from, that they can tap from roots. In they, their larval stage. Yeah, they spend a lot of their life underground. Yeah. So. Yeah. And... All cicadas spend a portion of their life cycle underground. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention that they're not dormant underground. Like sometimes you think of other species being dormant. They're alive and they're doing stuff down there. Right. <laughs> like they, they can move a bit underground. And, and So yeah. why don't we talk about the, life, the general life cycle of cicadas right sure. now. All right. And then I'll reiterate it later when we talk about a fungal pathogen that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, that's a good yeah. idea. Okay, so all of them start out as an egg, usually laid... Uh, in a plant, the adults will create a slit into the bark or into just the stem of a plant, mm -hmm. lay their eggs. Yeah, and they'll do it to woody plants. They'll do it to herbaceous plants. Yep. They'll do it everywhere. They're not picky. Yeah. <laughs> As we saw firsthand yeah. you know, when we were in Syracuse. So then when the larvae emerge, they drop to the ground and pretty much immediately burrow into the soil. Mm -hmm. And then they find roots to feed on. Yeah. So I did find some reference that when they're very, very young... They're not large enough to feed on tree roots, so they will very often use things like grass roots oh, okay. to get sap out of. Which, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. So it's probably wrong. <laughs> it <laughs> it's may, just roots in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they'll be under there for a number of years that corresponds to their species. Yeah. So the annual cicadas, they might be underground for anywhere. Do you remember what the, the different... Do you remember what the different amounts of time were? I think it was anywhere from like two to nine years, depending on the species. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, they're definitely all over the place. Yeah. So what we want to point out is with the annual species of cicadas, 
every year you'll have some of them emerging from the soil to go through their final molt. They're going to crawl up onto a plant or onto a tree, go through one final molt to become an adult, and then mate, lay eggs, and start the process all over again. Mm -hmm. And every year you're going to have some of them emerging from the ground. So if we're looking at, say, the, the dog day cicada, mm -hmm. however many years it's been underground, you're going to have some of them emerging this year. Next year you're going to have others emerging. Mm -hmm. So in any given area, certain portions of the population are going to be emerging every year. Now yeah. remember that because when we talk about the periodical cicadas, it's all or nothing, folks. Right. <laughs> they do it differently, and that's one of the reasons that their emergence is so astounding and impressive. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I also want to throw this out there now, um, that the adults don't go back underground when right. they're done mating. <laughs> the they adults die. are going to get eaten, or they're going to die. Yeah, they're, they're not lasting much longer. Right, so when they emerge from uh, underground, however many years they've spent underground, they might only spend a few weeks above ground, Molting, mating, if they're females, they're going to lay eggs, and then that's it. Their life's over. Yeah, it's weird. It's like if senior citizens went out in a crazy blaze of glory. <laughs> <laughs> a crazy blaze of sexual glory. <laughs> <laughs> Just a weird senior citizen uh, orgy. <laughs> now, did you come across the different common names for the different cicadas? No, no, go for it. This was a great list. So, in different areas of the world, they might be known as... The cherry nose, the brown baker, the red eye, the green grocer, yellow Monday, whiskey drinker, double drummer, or the black prince. They're all bad. <laughs> I, to me, they're all bad. I don't know. <laughs> but what is cicada anyway, I guess? Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> now, there is one that I wanted to point out. There's one species from Malaysia. It's called the Malaysian emperor. It's the Megapomponia imperatoria. Okay. Now, this is was referred to in one of the papers I was reading as the largest species. Mm-hmm. So I looked this up on YouTube, and the video that I found, I was amazed how big this thing was. This cicada was, like, bigger than a chickadee. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was seriously, like, to be hanging out in the woods at night and to have this thing land on you yeah. would be seriously disturbing. <laughs> That's how big it was. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so look that one up, folks. All right. So I think we're ready to move on to the periodical cicadas. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. So, why don't we start walking? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, these guys are in the genus Magicicada, and that literally translates to <laughs> magic cicada. I love that. And I think the magic part of it is that it was just so magical or astounding to people that they all emerge together every 13 or 17 years. And I guess that's uh, that qualifies for magic or something. Sure. <laughs> it seems sure. like magic, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, they occur throughout the entire eastern U.S., uh, but they're only in 15 broods. And we're calling them broods because at any one massive simultaneous emergence, multiple species are usually present. And I say usually because we'll kind of get specific into one particular brood, but... Um, Alright, and so in terms of the number of species, the eastern U.S. has only seven. And they're in three species groups. So I'm not going to say the species names, but there are some obvious naming patterns. And I kind of like these because they're actually descriptive yeah, in the specific epithets. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the species with the septin deck prefix in the specific epithets uh, in each of these species groups have 17 year life cycles. So septin is seven, deck is 10. Yeah. So it seems to make a lot of sense. And let's give people a specific example. So when we went to see the cicadas in Syracuse. Yep. The ones that we encountered were Magicicada, Septendecim. Yes. Yeah, so that 
species names refers to 17 years. Right, exactly. Except Magicicada cassini, which really, in my opinion, should be Magicicada septendecassini, <laughs> because it has a 17-year life cycle. But apparently taxonomists only want to tease consistency. That or cassini was named before they decided on that naming pattern. And then the species with the tradec prefix and their specific epithets in each species group have 13-year life cycles. So again, tray is 3, deck is 10, tray deck. Yeah. And, and just for an example of that, we just have Magicicada tradecum. That, that's also in the same species group as the one that we saw in, uh, in Syracuse. Okay, so I'm just going to back up just mm-hmm. for a minute just to give the listeners two points that I think are important. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to point out that cicadas, most species are found in the tropics, but you can find the annual cicadas all over North America. But the interesting thing about the periodical cicadas is there's only seven species and they're only found east of the Mississippi in North America, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to point out, we, we kind of jumped into it and, and took it for granted, but these seven species that we're going to focus on, the periodical cicadas, the main difference is they spend 13 or 17 years underground. That is why they're different than the annual cicadas, and they all emerge at once. And I do want to say something interesting about these closely related species groups, that within any group, some species are 17-year cicadas, and some other species are 13-year cicadas. And, and the reason I bring that up is that this means that the length of the period that the nymphs spend below ground isn't due to the life cycle length of their most recent common ancestor. It's more, uh, the, the trend seems more to be that the northern broods tend to be 17-year cicadas and the southern broods tend to be 13-year cicadas. And in, in terms of the numbers, there are 12 more northern 17-year broods, and there are three more southern 13-year broods. Right. So the 17-year ones I found were distributed mostly in the upper Midwest, the Great Plains states, uh, across the eastern U.S. And the 13-years, the 13-year cicadas are in the southern and Mississippi Valley states, although yeah. there is some slight overlap. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's why I try to say more northern right. and more southern, because it's not perfect, but that tends to be the trend. Sure. Yeah. So a question you might have is why emerge in massive numbers every 17 to 13 years? Uh, And let's just tackle the massive numbers bit. So the first reason that they might do this is something called predator satiation or predator swamping. Uh, Cicadas are slow, clumsy flyers who can't really escape predation all that well. Uh, So if millions of cicadas emerge all at once, predators won't be able to eat them all at once, and some of them may be able to reproduce, lay eggs, and carry on to the next generation. Right. Okay. Now, yeah. I want to give people, though, a, a visual, mm-hmm. because I think that's part of the, the beauty and the majesty of these species is when these guys emerge. So imagine a spring evening when soil temperatures are about 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you have that in your head? (laughs) (laughs) So in the South, if you're dealing with the 13-year species, this is going to be in late April or early May. And here in the North, it's going to be in late May or early June at the northern edge of the 17-year species range. These nymphs will emerge en masse. And at some sites, they have recorded a million and a half individuals per acre. So... 
hundreds of thousands of these <laughs> nymphs emerging all at once, all trying to find something to crawl up onto to go through that final molt. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine the critters in the area, the squirrels, the foxes, the raccoons, starlings just gorging themselves. Oh, they go nuts. <laughs> and I'll talk about it later, but there have been some studies where they've transported and released like 500,000, estimated 500,000. Those were all completely wiped out, no problem. You need so many <laughs> to satiate predators. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's uh, a few hundred thousand are not going to do it. You need millions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of, you know, the, the Prince song, We're Going to Party Like It's 1999. We're going to party like it's the 17-year cicada. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very special kind of party. <laughs> An orgy of gluttony. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like a really good idea that hey, they've evolved this behavior of emerging every 17 years or 13 years to just satiate the predators because we're all going to come out together, they're going to eat their fill, but at least a bunch of us are going to survive to reproduce. Well, that's why they come out in large numbers, but that's not why they come out every 13 to 17 years. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So this is something called predator avoidance. And this is cool. Yeah, yeah. And this is because it's difficult for predators to get in sync with a life cycle that's a prime number of years long. Why, Steve? Yeah, Tell well, us why. Well, but you may ask, why don't the predators just have a 13-year or 17-year life cycle themselves? I don't know. I don't know at all. <laughs> but predators don't seem to live that long for some reason. Right. Yeah, so they're going to have to be some lesser life cycle length for the most part. Yeah, because yeah. in the wild, it's rare for a predator to live that long especially here mm. in eastern North America. And this is the beauty of prime numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. So so predators have a shorter life cycle than the cicadas, but how much shorter is kind of important, I guess. So let me explain with an example. So let's just make up a world where the periodical cicadas have a 12-year life cycle instead of their 13- or 17-year life cycle. So if you're a predator with a 3-year life cycle, you would have a massive cicada feast and a subsequent population boom every four generations. If you had a four-year life cycle, that boom would be every three generations. And if you had a six-year life cycle, that would be every two generations. And this is because 12 has many numbers that divide into it. Right. But because prime numbers don't have any number that divide into them, except for one and themselves, <laughs> uh, it takes much longer for a predator to be in sync with the cicada life cycle. For example, a predator with a four-year life cycle and a cicada with a 13-year life cycle would only be in sync every 52 years. The trick is, uh, the mathematical trick is just multiplying those years together. So, right. yeah. Um, now... I think, for the most part, cicada predators aren't emerging periodically like cicadas do, right? <laughs> so this is the big flaw in my explanation here. But populations do naturally grow and shrink with food availability and other factors. Um, and the cicadas would probably want to avoid getting in sync with when the predators' populations are at their peaks. So you could think of peaks kind of like predator emergences. Okay. Not to say that there aren't any predators that have very specific length life cycles like sure. that. Sure. Yeah. But it's usually tied into uh, prey species they have regular access to. Sure, right, exactly. Not just every 13 or 17 years. Right, that, that's kind of what I was saying with if they have the feast, then they have a population boom, but then it'll go down, and then they have another population boom, down, up, down, up. And so it would make sense that the cicadas would want to avoid the upticks in the predators' populations, because yeah. the more predators there are, the more cicadas that are going to be eaten, and, and if, the less reproductive success they're going to have. And if you're on a 
a life cycle with a prime number, chances are you're going to be able to avoid those upticks. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Math is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about why we think they emerge every 13 or 17 years, I want to take a step back and focus a little bit on what happens when they emerge. We've talked a little bit about that. Okay. But also share with the audience some of the things that Fran told us about during our interview because she shared, shared lots of good stuff and even though we can't play the actual interview, we can still relate some of that information. Mm-hmm. All right, so we talked about how the young emerge in these massive numbers and when we were with Fran, she actually took us over to a maple tree and she showed us all of the holes in the ground. It was just peppered with these, what, half to a quarter inch holes where the larva emerged and we were there near the tail end of the emergence and even though it was a cool day so the Mm -hmm. cicadas weren't as active it was about 70 degrees we could still hear off in the woods the magicicada septendecim the species that we were around Mm -hmm. they make a very specific call the males do and it sounds like some people call them pharaoh cicadas because Mm -hmm. it sounds like pharaoh and Fran was telling us that This brood around the Griffin Hill Brewery Hops Farm, they emerged around late May. And do you remember how many emergences she had been around for, she said? Did she say this was her fourth? Yeah, she said it was her fourth emergence, but the first one was in 1915. She said she was in utero at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So she didn't get to hear it. But she said when the emergence started this year that... Her son was there. He's the one that that runs the brewery. He took some pictures, posted them on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And she said within just a few days, she was getting calls from reporters and even from researchers. Oh, yeah. When I was originally looking up things to read on this episode, I just wanted to see what the news articles were saying. And so many of them were actually quotes from someone from Griffin Hill Farm Brewery. Yeah, but I mean, it didn't really occur to me until we were there that if you were someone who's researching periodical cicadas, you just have this little window. Oh, yeah. Because from the time of emergence until the time the adults mate and die and then the young go back into the soil, it's usually only about four to eight weeks, uh, depending on where you are in their range. But she said... That when they first emerged, they took pictures, posted them online. These researchers came from uh, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry in New York. There were researchers from West Virginia. She says there was an acoustic biologist from the University of Connecticut that came. Oh, yeah. Um, Researchers came to study a fungal disease that's impacting them. And you'll talk about that Mm -hmm. a little later on. But, folks, she said that when the cicadas were in full swing, that the noise... All of these wee these no, all of these cicadas, they synchronize their calls. So it's not just that there's millions of them calling. The males synchronize, so it all happens together. She said, and I quote, it's globally loud, never-ending, everywhere. And she said during the heat spell, they were doing it day or night. Uh, around the beginning to mid-July here in New York, we had very hot weather, abnormally hot weather for about a week or so, it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And she just said they were so active, you couldn't escape from the sound. And one thing that was mentioned in one of the papers was they actually compared septendecim to Cassini. And septendecim doesn't 
give you any breaks whatsoever. As soon as <laughs> as soon as one group is about to stop, more males start up before they're able to stop, and so it's a never-ending call. Wow. Whereas whereas Cassini, uh, this is the way that the researchers could tell them apart because Cassini at one point was present in the finger likes brood. Oh, it was. Yep. And and they actually do have little gaps between their calls. Okay. Yeah. So that's how they were able to tell them apart because they were uh, bugging by ear, oh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So once the young birds from the ground, we mentioned that they're going to go through that last molt. So they crawl up onto to a perch somewhere. They molt one last time and when they do molt, they're white. And usually within an hour or two, uh, their their shell does harden and it darkens, but those white ones are, are those white ones look kind of ghostly. Look them up online, folks. Oh yeah, they're they're neat to see. And then they spend about six days in the trees, waiting for their exoskeletons to harden completely, and then the males will start up uh, with their song, trying to attract females. So we mentioned that the males are the ones that make the song. Mm-hmm. The females they do come in and they indicate receptivity by flicking their wings. That's a very specific sound. Mm -hmm. So in that video I mentioned earlier with David Attenborough, he uses his fingers to snap to mimic a call. And in the video, it looks like he can get a male that's perched near him to change direction by snapping his fingers and the male moves towards his his snap. And did we decide that we don't think it's a green screen? <laughs> <laughs> well, they they do a lot of edits in there. Yeah. So, I But how know. else are you going to get a cicada to go back and forth? Right. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I want to trust David Attenborough. Sure. That <laughs> he's legit. Yeah, yeah. So, Fran did tell us, though, that the researchers, do you remember what they were using to mimic the call? A light switch. Yeah, they yeah. found that the wing flick is at a certain frequency, and somehow they figured out that if you take a light switch, you know, just you buy a, a, a bare unfinished light switch from the hardware mm-hmm. store and you flick the toggle, that that closely mimics the frequency of that wing flick. From my experience with researchers, I guarantee there's a $200 tool you can buy that's called like the cicada mimicking tool. <laughs> and then what researchers do is they're like, eh. I can make something for 50 cents. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they and they save their department a bunch of money. So <laughs> That's awesome. So during this time when the males are looking for females, they'll be flying around. And again, Fran was telling us that at the height of the heat spell, the noise was deafening. But you would have cicadas flying around, very clumsy flyers flying right into you, landing on you. She said... I asked her if it's like spring peepers, how when they're really going, when you go down near a pond, the ones in your immediate vicinity quiet down. She said, oh, no. She said, when it's really hot, they're completely oblivious to your presence. Yeah, so they're not like uh, peepers and they're not like uh, crickets. You know, you get that force field of silence around you and and they're always a little too far away. So when the, the females do come in, flicking their wings, the males do change their song. And the song will change a few times depending how far along they are in the mating process. But after mating, then the female flies off and cuts a V-shaped slit in bark of young twigs and lays about 20 eggs in each slit. But she'll eventually lay a total of about 600 or, or more eggs. Yeah, so that's actually a bit more than what I found. I found that they lay about 190 eggs apiece on average. Mm-hmm. 
But then after factoring hatching success, they probably only get about 133 uh, eggs to hatch on average. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So I think that was just in one source that I found that okay. 600 yeah. number. So That might be closer to a maximum maybe. Yeah, somewhere yeah. in there. And when we were walking around, we were seeing evidence of egg laying and feeding on lots of different plants. As we mentioned before, it's not just woody plants. They're doing on our herbaceous plants as well. Mm -hmm. And just to give people out there a visual, for most of the time that, that we were there on Fran's property, we were walking along um, a power line corridor through the woods. So we had woods on either side of us and then uh, kind of a, a narrow open area, maybe about 20 or 30 yards wide. But all along the edges of that open area, the trees that were bordering it, we could see die off right oh yeah lots of flagging yeah. yeah so as far as the impact that these guys have you might think with you know over a million uh individuals sometimes it's gonna, it's gonna cause a lot of damage mm -hmm. it really doesn't seem to cause lasting damage yeah but it is recommended if you're going to be planting something like young trees you might want to wait till after an emergency year because <laughs> if you're a young tree there may be enough damage to, yeah. to uh cause lasting problems Okay, so we said uh, after the mating, the female does lay her eggs, and then after about six to ten weeks, the eggs are going to hatch, and those newborn nymphs just drop right to the ground where they burrow, and they begin another 13- or 17-year cycle. So as we mentioned earlier, the whole process of this emergence only takes about four to eight weeks, and then for 13 or 17 years, you don't see them again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depending on where you live, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so... Before we move on, there's there's one more thing I want to share because I know you want to talk about the fungal disease, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about what the periodical cicadas do look like. Okay. So earlier we did talk about what cicadas look like in general, but for the periodical species like the one that we saw, Magicicada septendecim, these guys have red eyes and a black thorax. The red eyes are really distinctive. You know, that might have been the only common name I liked, that red-eye one that you, that you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. The wings are translucent, but they do have orange veins. And then the underside of the abdomen may be black, orange, or striped with orange and black, depending on the species. Mm -hmm. So very vivid. We'll post some pictures. I think I actually already did post some pictures on Facebook in the past, but we'll post some more. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely take a look at them. Okay, so I think now I want to talk about the entomopathic fungal parasite, Massospora cicadina, I what, think. What does entomopathic mean? So it just means it's a pathogen that affects insects. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is the only known predator or pathogen that's synchronized to the cicada's life cycle. So something has figured it out. Yeah, I guess so. So I'll start with reiterating the cicada's life cycle and transition into the fungi's life cycle. So cicadas begin their lives by hatching from eggs embedded in stalks and branches. These ant-like nymphs fall to the ground, move underground, and feed on sap from tree roots. So this is where they acquire a stage one fungal infection. So the fungi is already in the soil. This is where they get it from. Um, at this point, the fungi remain dormant for 13 to 17 years. Unlike the cicada, the fungi is actually going dormant. Um, and uh, after the allotted time, the nymphs emerge from the ground, climb up onto trees and other structures, shed their skins, and emerge as infected adults. So these adults produce asexual spores from where the cicada's reproductive organs would be. Now, females 
respond to male singing normally. So their behavior doesn't change at all. They do those wing flicks and uh, they'll do them even if their reproductive organs have fallen off due to the infection, which have you seen pictures of now? No. No. They can full on lose the lower part of their body <laughs> and it's just fungus there. It's real disgusting. Um, so females relatively are unaffected behaviorally, but males with a stage one infection will actually respond as if they're females. They'll also do those precisely timed wing flicks. Um, and that will actually bring in males to try to mate with an infected male. Whoa, that's devious. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so it's spreading the fungus more rapidly than if they were just trying to mate normally. Yeah, so um, it's so disgusting that I just kept a quote in. So non-infected males will, quote-unquote, plunge their genitalia into the abdominal spore mass of an infected partner, and then they will go on to infect other actively coursing adult cicadas. Yeah, I remember when we were interviewing Fran, she was telling us about this disease, and she said it causes the males to have indiscriminate promiscuity. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I was just talking about a stage one infection, but uh, th so that, that would imply that there is a stage two. Yeah. yeah. So, so females will contract a stage two infection from stage one males, and males will contract a stage two infection from stage one infected males and females. Okay. Yeah. So males with stage two infections do not do the wing flicking in response to singing. And the reason for that is because the second stage of the fungi infection isn't trying to spread to more adult cicadas. The stage two infected cicadas produce sexual spores that drop to the ground and stay in the soil ready to infect the next generation of cicada nymphs that are due to emerge in 13 or 17 years. So this complex fungus-induced behavioral change in the cicadas has been proposed as the fungi's extended phenotype. And yeah. what does that mean? So because it hijacks cicadas, turning them into vehicles for fungus transmission at the expense of the cicadas' own interests, it can be considered not a behavior of the cicada, but more of a behavior of the fungus. <laughs> Yeah, it's so weird. So is this one of those examples of how a, a parasite like a fungus can alter the behavior yeah. of its host? And we've seen it in other really popular examples, like there's the cordyceps that infect ants, and it'll make the ant crawl up really high on a tree, and then that's where the spores will release yeah, to infect more right. ants. And, and then sometimes with like prey species, the infected ones will lose their fear of a predator. Yes, yeah. And, like, go right up to the predator? I think that's what happens with grasshoppers that have the roundworm infections. Oh. They will go right into a body of water where they'll be eaten by, I think, fish or something. Yeah. And then the worm actually completes its life cycle in the fish. Yeah. And if I got any of that wrong, it's not in my notes. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what I heard, you know. We're just trying to get across it. If, if you want to go down a fascinating rabbit hole, go and explore how parasites can impact behavior of their hosts. Oh, it's crazy. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so now I think would be a good time to talk about the broods and, and why they're called broods and where that, that comes from. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back a little over 100 years to 1898, and there was an entomologist named C.L. Marlat, and he had been studying the cicadas, and these periodical cicadas have been known about in North America really for centuries, possibly thousands of years. The Native Americans were aware of them. Uh, they understood their life cycle, but there's even records of people 
like Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Banneker, uh, famous names in American history, recording these emergences and noticing that they're coming out every 13 or 17 years. So Marlatt decided that he would assign different groups Roman numerals. Mm -hmm. And he created 30 different broods of periodical cicadas. But it should be noted that some of these, in his mind, were theoretical. So mm -hmm. he wasn't certain that they exist. There were 17 distinct broods that had a 17-year life cycle. And then he assigned those 1 through 17, obviously. And then there were 13 broods with a 13-year life cycle. No way. <laughs> no way that there was 17, 17 year and then 13, 13 He did. That's how it worked out. But again, <laughs> some of them were not observed. Some of the ones that did exist at that time have since gone extinct. Okay. So we've retained his number scheme just for convenience sake, but right mm -hmm. now there's only 15 broods that survive. Mm -hmm. Some of those are contracting, and yes. they may disappear in the future. Mm -hmm. And some have already disappeared that we know about. Right. Yeah. So there is a website called magicicada.org that keeps track of the different broods, and we would recommend that you go there. It has some good background on uh, periodical cicadas, but you can actually see which broods are going to be emerging each year and where. Uh, so, for example, in 2018 this year, the 17-year brood, brood 7, they emerged in central New York. Mm -hmm. The and, Finger Lakes brood is. Yeah, is and you're going to talk more about them yep, in a minute. Um, and then next year in 2019, brood 8 is going to emerge in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And we are going to try to go and record during that emergence and hopefully our equipment will work properly <laughs> but if anybody out there knows someone in ohio pennsylvania or west virginia who has access to a property where brood eight is going to emerge please get in touch with us because uh, that's what we're going to work on over the next year that's our homework is to try and set up a location that we can go record at yeah and maybe we could turn it into a little camping trip <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so Steve, tell us a little more about Brood 7. All right, so because Bill and I visited the property owned by the Griffin Hill Farm Brewery to see the emergence uh, of, of Brood 7 for ourselves, I really wanted to focus a bit more on the brood in the Finger Lakes region, Brood 7. So Brood 7 is unique in the fact that its range doesn't overlap with the range of any other periodical cicada. So overlapping isn't common in the first place, but all the other brood ranges at least border neighboring brood ranges. Um, but uh, Brood 7 is really the only range that looks like an island. It's floating all alone in central New York. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's also currently the northernmost population. Uh, and it wasn't always the northernmost, but we can touch on that a little bit later. And lastly, it is the smallest geographical range of any brood. That's really restricted. Oh, yeah. 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 So now I kind of want to go into the status of the brood. I'm going to go into a tiny bit of history about the brood right now. So um, in terms of data collection, the earliest records are from 1797. Um, and the 2018 survey has only just been completed, and there aren't going to be any publications for that for a little while, potentially right. a, a few years. So by 19... So remember, I said... We started in 1797, that was the first. But by 1967, the population was only reported in three of the historical 10 counties surrounding the Finger Lakes. Wow. So that's already a big decrease. Uh, by 1984, populations in two of the three remaining counties were reported as quote unquote small and were heavily fed upon by birds, primarily grackles and red winged blackbirds. 
So what's going on? Well, <laughs> so since we mentioned them being eaten, I kind of want to quickly mention what eats them. Did we talk about this already? We did not. Okay. Uh, since cicadas have no chemical defenses and they're slow flyers, you'll get some birds, foxes, raccoons, and smaller mammals. Um, these guys will just go nuts eating the cicadas <laughs> for, in this area, about three to four weeks that the cicadas spend above ground. Did you come across that dragonflies might eat them too? I did, I did. I, I don't know why I left that out. But... <laughs> I tried to find pictures, but it just and, seems like they'd be too big for dragonflies. Yeah, and then there are um, cicada-killing wasps, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and they lay their eggs inside the cicadas, right. and then they kind of eat them from the inside out. <laughs> and I feel we, we are obligated to mention that people do eat them too. Oh, yeah, I yeah. forgot. They, they actually, uh, cicadas, and I left this out of my note, but they have been used for some weird stuff. So eating is one thing. Yeah. The second thing is they've been used as currency. Have you ever, did you hear that? No. Link in the description, guys, because yeah. uh, uh, it's usually something I leave out, but I just thought of it. It's just, I had inspiration right now to share that, but it's very <laughs> weird. Okay, so as we said earlier, the cicadas only defense is that they have large numbers and if all the predators are satiated for a small window of time some of the remaining individuals can reproduce and keep the cycle going into the next generation but if the population becomes critically small either through natural causes or human alteration of the habitat while the cicada nymphs are developing underground the population can disappear and if this brood goes extinct it wouldn't be the first one because we already know and it wasn't just a hypothetical brood, but brood 11 in southern New England became extinct sometime after 1956. And brood 21, a 13-year cicada brood in Florida, became extinct sometime after 1970. Now, the first one I mentioned, brood 11, that used to be the northernmost brood. And brood 21, that used to be the southeasternmost brood. So it seems like there's something going on in the range, on the, on the extreme ranges of, of broods. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to bring up a, a particular researcher right now because he was pretty important for the research for the Finger Lakes brood. So Dr. Laverne Pachuman, uh, he is a, a retired professor in the Department of Entomology for Cornell. He's the researcher that conducted the 1967 and 1984 studies, and he predicted that in 2001, Brood 7 would be solely restricted to Onondaga County. So we went from uh, four counties to two counties, and he said in 2001 there would only be one county. Was he right? Well, uh, he was mostly right. And, and Cornell. I, yeah, I, and I say that because... Um, Based on his evidence, he failed to find any evidence of egg laying in any other county other than Onondaga. Okay. So, of course, even if you found adult cicadas in an area, if you didn't find egg laying that same year, uh-oh, <laughs> they're gone. Right. But uh, in 2001, a separate independent research team did find a small new population of only a few dozen individuals in Livingston County, about 2.5 miles southeast of the populations that Pachuman was tracking. So they were there, you know? <laughs> so so we didn't see them, but it was still a very, very small population. And what's a few dozen going to do? Right. Like, uh, so we can predict that they probably wouldn't be here in 2018. Okay. But I'll actually touch on that too. So now what Dr. Pachuman and subsequent researchers who revisited his sites have found was that the populations in Onondaga County are actually doing really well. There's no fear of anything happening to those populations. So it seems like Brood 7 is safe in that county uh, for now. And 
The principal species there, as we mentioned, is Magicicada septendecim, but there was an additional species at only one site, and that species was likely to be Magicicada cassini. But they weren't sure if that species was still going to be present in 2018, and I'll update you with 2018's data in a moment. So even though Onondaga County populations seem to be doing fine, they are obviously declining. They're disappearing from many of their historical counties. Um, and the reason for the decline is puzzling, and I'll explain. So while the late Holocene cooling, so we're in the Holocene geologic time period right now, most of the time the temperatures have been cooling. And that was somewhat restricting to the spread of cicadas. But for the last hundred years or so, anthropogenic climate change has created an increase in the potentially suitable habitat in New York. And within the historical 10 counties that Brood 7 occupied, the amount of forested land increased from less than 25% in 1910 to just about 60% forested land in 1992. But the numbers are still declining. Like I said, this is why it seems paradoxical. Because even though their habitable land is increasing, their numbers are decreasing. So the authors of one of the papers that I read mentioned that predators will probably be the ultimate cause of extirpation in most cases, but predators have never been known to extirpate large numbers of periodical cicadas in suitable habitat. In other words, it's probably something other than predators that are declining these populations to critically low levels, and that's where predators can come in and finally consume them all without being satiated. So what's causing it? Yeah, so <laughs> so I know what you're thinking. Maybe this has something to do with the fungal pathogen we talked about earlier. I was just going to ask. Nah, not really. Uh, previous studies didn't find high enough incidence of the pathogen. Yeah. Right, so, so what could it be? So uh, in their 2004 paper, Gilbert and Kloss speculated the hypothesis that anthropogenic forest fragmentation is alley-ooping the ball and predators are slam-dunking periodical cicada broods into extinction. <laughs> now... While males... Was that your description? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, that's a quote from the paper. <laughs> so, so uh, while males don't disperse, mated females often make dispersal flights over open fields and have been collected about 900 feet from forested areas. So they do disperse somewhat, but based on a calculation of the maximum possible distances a female cicada could disperse, that distance is about one and a quarter miles. So yeah. even though forested habitat is increasing percentage-wise, the kind of forest habitat... There's too many gaps between the forested yeah. habitats. Oh, forest fragmentation has so many impacts. Yeah, uh, and while we're at it, one and a quarter miles to be able to disperse, yeah. as a potential maximum, relatively short. By the way, that's like best-case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very small distance. And even if some females did disperse to a nearby woodlot, it's unlikely that the reproductive output would be enough to satiate predators in the new area. So um, Magicicada septendicum produces an average, like I was saying before, of 190 eggs per female with a 70% hatching success. And this is... I'm... I left this in here on purpose. I hope we're not getting into the weeds because this, I just thought these studies were incredible. So based on some transplant studies, it seems like a whole lot need to be dispersed in order to effectively carry on to the next generation. A 1962 study transplanted 1,000 adults and they were all eaten by birds. <laughs> a 1907 study transplanted enough cartloads of twigs to produce, quote unquote, probably hundreds of thousands of nymphs. <laughs> And even though many of these nymphs successfully emerged as adults 17 years later, blackbirds ate so many that there was no effective 
oviposition by females. Wow. So no eggs were laid. There's got to be a lot of them. And now this is my favorite one. And finally, a 1987 study introduced an estimated 410,000 to 550,000 nymphs, but before they could bury into the soil, almost all of them were eaten by ants, and only 29 adults emerged 13 years later. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So... Could you imagine those researchers? <laughs> okay, 13 years later. Oh, man. Yeah, so... <laughs> 29. So... <laughs> So this is relatively good evidence that effective dispersal and subsequent colonization is probably a very rare event. Um, and Brood 7 is probably largely restricted to forests that they historically occupied. Am I wrong or did Fran tell us that her population at the farm brewery seemed to be growing? Well, that could be the case because, um, like I said earlier... Onondaga County populations are doing really well, at least where they're restricted to. Okay. So these populations could be increasing. I'm sure some years they'll increase, some years they'll decrease. They seem to be stable and healthy. And I think two things I'm thinking of as, as I'm listening to you is that we're going off her anecdotal account. Mm -hmm. But she did also say that the property has changed a lot over her lifetime mm -hmm. and that it's become more and more forested. Okay, yeah, so. yeah. So that kind of fits the pattern we were talking about yeah. of, of the land in New York increasing in, their, in the amount that's forested. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go a little bit back in time because I kind of want to... I feel like it's still been unsatisfactory why cicadas have been declining. And I think it'll all come together in this next short segment. So okay. in New York... You'll be able to say for sure... <laughs> There's good evidence that hopefully that if we study this further, that it should all come together. Okay. All right. So in New York, the year 1880 was where the largest percentage of land, 78%, was being used for agriculture. And this may represent a geographical bottleneck for magisicated populations in forested habitats. Now, it may be the case that Brood 7 is still restricted to the same forests that they were restricted to in 1880. Really? Remember the dispersal problem. Right. So if there's not forests to move to, if you only have 22% of New York forested, what's the chance you're going to be able to disperse to a close-by forest? There is a chance that today they're still in the same areas generally that they were in 1880. Wow. Yeah, and only further declined as those remaining forests were encroached upon, while the unoccupied, suitable forest habitats increased throughout the region that they would have a difficult time spreading into. So there's habitat, but they can't get to it. They just can't get to oh. it, yeah. Now, it has also been suggested that anthropogenic effects are magnified on the edge of a species range. And this is kind of what I was getting at earlier, is that we've already seen some of the extreme northeast populations fizzle out. We've seen extreme southeastern populations fizzle out. And now we're seeing the northernmost current brood not doing so well. And then there's other populations, um, brood 10 in Michigan. And brood 10 actually kind of spans kind of across the states a bit. And there's another one in Long Island that are currently declining. So it seems like the populations that we're seeing struggling seem to coincide with being on the edge of the species overall range. Does that make sense? It does. Okay, cool. So the work is still ongoing and researchers are currently unaware 
of solid data on minimum population density that's required to satiate predators, but it seems like the population in Onondaga County is still doing really well. Um, And the major worry for populations is what lies outside of this region. So I was fortunate enough to get in contact with Dr. John R. Cooley, one of the researchers currently studying Brood 7, and he was able to answer a few of my questions uh, from the data, even though this study hasn't been published yet. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Way to go, Steve. (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, they did not find any evidence of that small population of Magicicada cassini that they found in 2001, meaning that the only species of periodical cicada left in the Finger Lakes brood is Magicicada septendecim. Um, There are still other species of cicada, such as the non-periodical cicadas in the genus Okanagana, but no other Magicicada. Um, This year, Brood 7 is limited to the Onondaga Valley and the ridges alongside it, and all other populations seem to have disappeared. However, like I was saying, the populations that were out this year seem to be doing really well. So, some bad news, some good news. But that's all I have. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa! What was that? Oh, (laughs) Teddy Longlegs. It's okay, Steve. It almost bit me. I would have died. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god we gotta leave that in okay that is so bad all right so do you have anything else before we wrap up i do not that is it okay all right so guys i hope you enjoyed the episode we're thankful for every single patron but at the end of every show we'd like to give a special thanks to our top patrons nick rob we named the dog indy and especially ken diane morgan Alyssa, elizabeth daniel and susan Thank you all so much. Thanks, folks. And we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. So thank you, Katrefin. So keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. In every episode, I like to mention people who have given us a shout-out. And uh, this one I'm a little bit unsure of, but uh, the podcast was shown on some strange diagram on storiesandscience.org. So uh, we'll put a link to that, but I, I don't know what it is. You're not our, sure what the context Our name's just on the website. Uh, thanks regardless. Yeah. And as always, the art was done by Always Wandering Art, and links to their website and Etsy page are in the description. If you want to get in touch with us to give us some feedback or to recommend topics for episodes, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. You can like us and follow us on Facebook. You can tweet at us at Field Guides Pod or follow us on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways to help out. You can share the episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. And parents, don't forget, get those kids outside, let them flip over rocks, and let them get muddy and get dirty. See you next month, folks. See ya.